I don't know if your family is anything like mine or like Alison's, but whenever everyone gets together for an event, whether it's a birthday party gathering or Christmas dinner, uh, after all the catching up and the remarking of, oh, look how big the kids are now, you sit down to dinner and afterwards you're all relaxed and out come the family stories, the classic family stories, the ones that get told and retold and everyone knows what's coming and, and the punchline and uh, the funny one about old Uncle Wally who refused to wear a belt and his pants kept falling down at inopportune moments or or the time when mum tried to kill the neighbour's cat but he got the better of her that day uh, or the proud moments of did you know that we're related to Bonnie Prince Charlie or, or the scandals about grandma and what happened with her. The the book of Genesis can feel a bit like one of those dinner party conversations about the old family stories. And in one sense, that's exactly what it is. It's It's a meander through the family background. It was written by Moses as he led the people of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness back towards the promised land that the family had left 470 years before. It's a reminder to the people of God, to Israel, of just who they are and where they come from and and what their place was in the world. But it's more than that because, as we've been reminded over and over, this was a people who were chosen by God to bring blessing on a world in rebellion against God. That's what God promised Abraham, the father of this nation, And then he promised it again to his son Isaac and then again to his son Jacob. But again, it's more than that because because the book's teaching us about God. It's teaching us about his character and and how it is that he interacts with the world and, and how he deals with people who really are a bunch of messed up sinners, aren't they? These are not, the characters in this family history, the godly, moral elite who you'd be proud to have as your relatives who God was lucky to have on his side, this is a completely different bunch to that. These are the scandals, I guess, of the family history, but God was working in them and through them. Today we're looking at chapters 37 and 38, which which really begin the final section of the great saga. The last 14 chapters of Genesis really hang together as one unit, and really it's one long tale about, well, it's about all the brothers, but particularly it's about two brothers. Now, we've had uh, a few of those in Genesis already, Cain and Abel, Noah's sons, Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau. But, But this one about these two brothers is unique in that both of these brothers are going to end up blessed by God. That's something that's not happened before. And both of them are going to be key to God's plan to fulfill his promise to bring blessing to the nations. And in many ways, both these brothers are the same. Both of them are victims of a family plot. Both of them have their personal effects used against them. Both end up outside the care of the family God has chosen. Uh, Both of them are brought to the brink of despair. And both of them in their lowest moments are going to have God do amazing things in their lives. And not just for their own personal benefit, but to further his plans and purposes. But in some way, these two brothers are opposites. Uh, One is forced against his will out of the family. The other leaves of his own accord. One is righteous, the other evil. One's the hero of the story. The other is the villain. 
And as we meet them and the story unfolds, it, it happens in a number of scenes or acts which Moses has deliberately uh, uh, organised to share and, and he's chosen to do it that way in order to set up the main ideas or themes for the rest of the book, which really do show us what God is like and what God is planning to do. And, and these themes are all weaved together in, in a glorious tapestry that by the end we're going to marvel at who God is and what he is like. So let's get into it. Scene number one, which is going to show that Joseph is God's man. That's the first theme that the first scene sets up for us. Uh, Now, there's no doubt that Joseph is highly favoured by his father, Jacob. He is Jacob's man. Uh, Now, we saw how complicated Jacob's family life was. 13 children through four different women who are all living under the same roof and who couldn't stand each other. Uh, Joseph certainly wasn't a great husband, and as it turns out, he's definitely not a great father either. Verse 3, now Israel, which is Jacob's new name, he loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age. Also didn't hurt that he was born of his favourite wife, Rachel, as well. But Jacob, or Israel, played favourites. And he wasn't going to pretend otherwise. You might have your favourite child or grandchild, but you know, we, we, we don't want people to know that, even if it's real. But he made a show of it. Verse 3 continues, And so he made a long sleeve robe for him. Or, or in other translations, more famously, a coat of many colours. Now, we're not supposed to imagine a tie-dye T-shirt. It, it's not a hippie outfit that he's wearing. As if his son's giving, sorry, dad's giving him kind of the the hand me downs. No, no, this is a coat of royalty. The only other people in the Bible described as wearing this kind of long sleeve, many coloured robes are King David's princess daughters. So, so think of it as if Joseph is sporting the most expensive, high end Armani suit of his day, colourful as it was, and it was designed to show exactly who number one is in his father's eyes. And and Joseph was expected by his dad to wear it all the time. But the dreams that he has show us that he's more than just dad's favourite. Joseph is favoured by God. He is God's man. Dreams in the Old Testament are hugely significant. They're understood to be God's way of communicating to his people, like particular key moments, particularly that's the case when they're repeated like this one is, and we're going to see that coming in. I mean, people have dreams that aren't relevant and aren't from God, but there are times when God speaks through dreams, but they're repeated and they're clear what they mean or they're interpreted. The first time the dream comes to Joseph, it's agricultural. Joseph dreams that he's been out harvesting wheat and he's gathered it all into a big bundle called a sheaf and and the brothers are all bringing their sheaves as well, but their sheaves bow down to his sheaf. They're kind of leaning over stalks, bowing down. And as he explains the dream to his brothers, they're in no doubt what they mean, what the dream means. Are you really going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule us? They understand the meaning that, well, Joseph's meaning, but they don't believe it. They're they're incredulous. But then Joseph has a second dream about the same thing. This time it's 
It's about astronomy rather than agriculture. He says, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. This time he tells dad as well as his brothers and Jacob comes to exactly the same conclusion. Again, he's incredulous, but he understands the message. Am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come and bow to the ground before you? And we read they were jealous of him. But because it's from God, it couldn't be clearer, could it, that that Joseph is not just Jacob's favourite, but in God's purposes, Joseph is God's man, chosen to rule. God is going to raise him up to a position where all of God's people, which is who this family are, are going to bow down. They're going to prostrate themselves on the ground before him. Now, the family, they just think that Joseph's just a self-important, jumped-up little twerp. He's gloating over them as he struts his stuff in his fancy suit. But, but this isn't an ego trip. It's God's revelation. And, and I think he's just as surprised as we are, as they were. And by the end of the book, it's going to happen. They will all literally bow to the ground before him. And it won't be because of his pride It won't be because he raises a mighty army and conquers or anything like that. It will be because God will raise him up. God has chosen him, chosen Joseph to rule. This is his man. But it looks from what happens next that that cannot be the case and it will never happen because in the second scene, instead of bowing down in worship and paying homage to him, what happens to Joseph? Well, God's man is betrayed by wicked men. And and as the story unfolds, we see just how wicked Joseph's brothers really are. They are bad, bad news. This is a family you would stay right away from. In, In some ways, it's not surprising, given how messed up Jacob's love life was. Children from four different women all jealous and lonely and manipulative under the same roof. That was always going to be a recipe for a dysfunctional family. And in Joseph, they found an outlet for their cruelty. Here was dad's favourite and they knew it. It was rubbed in their faces every day by his outfit. And, And now he's going around saying that they're going to bow down to him one day and they hate him for it. Three times we're told that they hated him. Verse 4, they hated him. Verse 5, they hated him even more. Verse 8, and so they hated him. Now, I'm an engineer by training, so I love it when stories make things obvious and clear rather than having to work out the hidden subtext and meanings and stuff. You get the point, right? They hated his guts. That leads to a bit of war within the family. Verse 4, they, they couldn't speak peaceably to him. Every sentence in that household carried a snide barb or a wounding arrow. Uh, some of you might have had the misfortune of belonging to a family like that where, where things are set around the table and you know they carry loaded meaning and, and people are just waiting to have their turn to have a go. It's so damaging and it's so hurtful. There's jealousy. The, the brothers are jealous of him. There's plotting There's the weakness of Reuben who can't face up to his younger siblings when he knows the right thing to do. There's callous indifference. We read later on as Joseph reflects back, or sorry, the brothers reflect back to this moment in chapter 42, 
that they saw the distress of Joseph's soul as they locked him down in the pit, that they'd thrown him in, and he pleaded with them and begged them, and they couldn't care less. There's attempted murder. Verse 18, they plotted to kill him. Verse 31, there's deception. They take his coat and they cover it in blood uh, to show it to dad. Uh, There's the sheer utter hypocrisy. You notice at the end of the chapter, they they joined with their father in mourning Joseph's death. They're they're crocodile tears. They know full well that he's still alive. They don't know where he is, but he's not their problem anymore. And, and, And there's unresolved grief. I mean, what dad would say this, I will go down to my grave because of this. I will never stop mourning him. It is a miserable family situation. And and perhaps there there are all sorts of lessons we could learn about family dynamics, uh, how you shouldn't play favourites because look what happens. Or, or, you know, simple one, just marry one wife and cherish her. (laughs) But... But one of the ways to see why Moses is telling these narratives and what God's teaching us is to see where the rest of the Bible takes them. So if you turn to Acts chapter 7 for a moment, Acts 7 is Stephen's speech while he's on trial for his life and he's talking to the Israelites. This is after Jesus has come and been resurrected and he's on trial for his life. But look at verse 9, he says, The patriarchs were jealous of Joseph and they sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. But then he goes on and gives a whole long list of similar evils from Israel's whole history. Not just those particular brothers, but everyone in the generations in between. And he gets to the end of this list in history and and he draws the conclusion in verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. So here is one emphasis from the rest of the Bible about this wicked and dysfunctional family situation, that they are not just alienated from each other. They are alienated entirely from God They are resisting God. They're resisting the Holy Spirit. They're turning their backs on on God's clear word. They're turning their backs on God's ways. And and it's seen in how they treat other members of the family of God, which is what this family is. But Stephen takes it even further and he says, which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And so here in Joseph's betrayal by his wicked brothers is a, is a foreshadowing of everything they would ever do to God's servants. They would always be betrayed by the wicked. You see it with Moses, you see it with David, you see it with the prophet Elijah, but, but all of it is pointing towards Jesus, the righteous one, clearly God's man clearly with all of God's authority. And yet those who saw him, they hated him. Clearly God's ruler, clearly the one before whom every day, every knee will bow down. And yet those who were confronted by him despised him. Clearly the man who God had appointed for rescue. And yet 
to those to whom he come would not receive him. Now, I take some real encouragement from that, and I wonder if you do too, that if you're hated for naming the name of Jesus and you're living for him, and then you're in very good company. Right? You may well feel the sting of the attacks against Christians and against churches or against you personally as a Christian, as a believer. You, you may find yourself the target of snide comments and barbed remarks or even just a sheer wall of hostility in some places, but, but you're not alone. Right? You're in very, very good company. And it's not that God has abandoned you or forsaken you or that he won't fulfill his promises and plans in you. Because in fact, as it turns out, it is this very act of betrayal by his wicked brothers that is going to provide the very source of salvation that they will need, though they don't know it yet. Just as will be the case when Jesus Christ is betrayed and handed over to death. God is always doing something. God is in control and he is working out his good plans to bring salvation and blessing and Change more, more than just our own salvation. This act of betrayal with Joseph is, is in fact the way that God is going to start to fulfill his promise that through the family of Jacob, he will bring about blessings to the nations. And we're going to be seeing some of those blessings as we see out the end of the book. And it's not just that God is reacting that he's a very good chess player who, who knows how to counter moves and goes, oh, oh, they did that. Oh, what am I going to do now? No, no, this is his plan. Right? We're going to be told that multiple times, that God uses the actions of the wicked and the decisions and the motivations of the wicked to bring about his purposes. Not that they are innocent because of that, but he is in charge as they hate. God's in charge as the brothers express their jealousy. The Lord is sovereign as they plot. And as Reuben ums and ahs and fails to do the right thing, God rules as Judah sells Joseph into slavery. Whose hands are on the controls? God's. He is purposefully and deliberately using all the wicked designs of evil men to bring about his plan to rescue his people and bring blessings to the nations. And so if we can take comfort from the fact that we're in good company when we're hated, take even more comfort from the fact that God has never lost control and he is always working out his good purposes for you and for the people around you, even if you're going through very challenging times and hated for being a believer. But that leads us to the third scene in chapter 38, which, which might seem like a, a real detour from the story as, as we go on to find out what happened to Judah. It might feel like you're having one of those family moments after dinner and the stories are coming up and everyone's telling that one and then our grandma seems to wander off into an irrelevant side detail because we're left hanging at the end of chapter 37 with Joseph as his slave, with his brothers shedding crocodile tears and I don't know about you, but what do you want to know about? What happens to Joseph? But instead, Moses refuses to tell us straight away and, and he goes into this morbid but morbidly fascinating story of death, of prostitution and of incest in the life of Joseph's brother Judah. It, it might make a good movie script, it'd be an MA movie, uh, but, 
But what's it got to do with the price of fish or what's it got to do with the price of slaves in Egypt for that matter? But the interlude about Judah and Tamar is absolutely deliberate and it's delicious when you see what happens. It's precisely placed to show us one more thing we need to know about God in his dealing with humanity, in his plans to bring about blessing to the nations through this family. Here is the fourth leg on which the table sits. God has a plan to exalt his chosen man as the ruler. That man is going to be betrayed by wicked men. In God's sovereignty, he uses that evil to bring about salvation. But now we're going to see something else incredible about God and his dealings. He is a God of incredible mercy and can even turn the most wretched life around, which is what he is doing in this whole thing. Judah is an out-and-out creep spiritually, morally. He is someone we might happily despise and yet he is taken hold of by God and rescued. But... He's got to be brought to his knees first. And that's, the guess, the fourth thing. They've got to bring them to their knees. Uh, right from the first verse, we're being shown just how bad this guy really is. If, if not, we don't know already from what he did to his brother Joseph. He was the organiser of the slave trade. But verse, uh, chapter 38, verse 1, At that time Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adulamite named Hira. Now, when you think about it, it's, it's not such a surprise that Judah left home. After all, he had sold Joseph into slavery and every day he was confronted by Jacob's vow never to stop grieving, never to stop mourning. Every day Judah must have been reminded of his guilt. But rather than dealing with his guilt, Judah does what so many people do and he just runs from it, right? Buries his head in the sand. But he's not just running from his family. I take it that he's also running from God because remember, Jacob was the family of God's promise and these are the people God had promised to give his precious land to. These are the people who God had said, it's with them that you'll get blessings to the nations. And so as he runs from God... And he runs from his family rather than confronting his guilt. He flees into the arms of an idolatrous Canaanite woman, not one of God's people. Now, we have already heard over and over very strong warnings several times that this family, that none of the family are to marry Canaanite women and that it would be an act of betrayal against God. But Judah does exactly that. Verse 2, there... Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as a wife and slept with her. And they end up having three sons together, Ur, Onan and Shelah. Uh, Shelah's not necessarily a name an Aussie would give their son. Now, the boy named Shelah, it's like a boy named Sue. <laughs> but, but as it turns out, things go from bad to worse. Judah chooses a wife for his firstborn son, Ur, a woman named Tana, who's almost certainly another Canaanite. Uh, like Judah, his sons are a rough bunch. His first son is Ur. Who, uh, you think, why do you call your son Ur? Do you stutter when they say, what, what name do you want to give your boy? Uh, no, it wasn't that. Uh, Ur uh, is the Hebrew word for evil, spelt backwards. 
right? What a thing to call your son. Good one, Judah. And as it turns out, Ur was very wicked, so wicked, in fact, that God brings him to an early death. We're not told why, what he did, but he's an evil boy. Following Ur's death, the middle brother, Onan, he ought to have married Tamar and have children who would be known as Ur's kids. That was the way of doing things. It's called Leverite marriage, uh, and it's a big deal for God's people in the Old Testament. But Onan isn't the least bit interested in anything other than just getting his jollies off with his brother's widow, and he engages in a primitive form of contraception uh, described in verse 9, and as a result, he is doing a great evil in God's sight, and he is put to death under God's wrath. And so having lost two sons while married to Tamar, Judah's not too excited about marrying off Shelah, his youngest son, to her. So what he does is he sends Tamar back to her father, packs her off, promises her that she can marry Shelah sometime in the future, maybe when he's grown up, but promptly wipes her out of his memory and forgets all about her and about the deal he's made. Tamar's waiting for years. She is ticked off. But even then, it's hard to imagine how she stomachs what she goes and does in her plan to, well, get her way in exact revenge, verses 12 to 19. She is so desperate to provide an heir for Ur that he should have had that she's prepared to seduce her father-in-law by dressing up as a prostitute and waiting for Judah to come by at the end of the shearing season, which is kind of like post-exam party season that students might have. It's, it's time to party. And what's more, everyone in pagan Canaan joined in the local religion, which, which involved convincing the gods of the land to make your crops and animals fertile by stimulating the idols by having sex with one of the cult prostitutes in front of it. Uh, and, and so that's what Tamar is dressed up as and pretending to be as Judah comes by. He's a pagan priestess prostitute, right, who's going to bring fertility to the land, or so she is pretending. And so we get to verse 16. He went over to her by the roadside and said, Come, let me sleep with you, not knowing it was his daughter-in-law springing a trap. And it. It just shows us how low Judah has sunk. He's fled from God. He's fled from God's people. He's been so bewitched by the world. He's up to his neck now in pagan idolatry. And without realizing it, he's committing incest to boot. Here is a life in total downward spiritual spiral into the muck. And quite extraordinarily, and I think it's a lot like us, he is determined in the midst of all the muck to protect his reputation because he leaves her with some of his personal effects uh, as he says, oh, look, I'll come back with the payment for what we've just done. I'm going to get you a goat. Uh, and so he, and she takes a, a deposit right, of his staff, his lanyard and his signet ring. And he comes back and he can't find her, which was her plan all along. But he's still determined to keep up his public face of decency. Verse 23, 
Let her keep the items for herself, otherwise we shall become a laughing stock. Right? Who cares how bad or how ridiculous or shameful you are as long as no one else finds about it, right? And it doesn't end up on Facebook, right? Because then people will laugh. But then the spiral down to the mark for Judah is finally complete when he finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant and so she has obviously been immoral with someone and he engages in an act of such rank hypocrisy as to be utterly contemptible and yet so recognisable. He's told in verse 24, your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a prostitute and now she's pregnant. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned to death. This man is scum. And that's exactly when he's found out. And it's just done so beautifully in verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them, whose signet ring, cord and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, she is more in the right than I. She's more righteous than I am since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. It's a slam dunk moment for Tamar. And it is so fitting and so ironic because here is Judah who is plunged into immorality and he is identifying the personal effects that have been used to betray him. But look back at chapter 37 and verse 32. How had Judah tricked his dad. They sent the long sleeve robe to their father and said, we found this, examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? His father recognised that it is my son's robe, he said. Just as Judah and his brothers sought to conceal their guilt in the deception of Jacob, so Judah's guilt is exposed through the deception of Tamar, and the identification of personal belongings. And Judah is brought to his knees. And it won't be for the last time. Because here is the beginning of change. Judah recognises uh, his evil. He, he confesses it and, and he starts to make amends. He cares for Tamar and the, the twin boys who are going to be born, Perez and Zerah. He, he never sleeps with her again, you know, he, he, he's, he's starting. And actually what, what Moses is doing is having flagged up uh, in the last chapter three of the major themes are going to play out, here is the, here's the fourth one that's going to emanate through the rest of the book, the bringing of the brothers to their knees. Before we get the rest of the, the end of the story, Judah is brought to his knees. And by the end of the book, he's brought to his knees again for his guilt in what happened to Joseph. And he will pay homage and bow down and prostrate himself before Joseph, as will his brothers. And he will receive incredible mercy from God, as they all will, as they are forgiven, which Judah and his brothers patently do not deserve. And God is going to do amazing things through Judah. 
He will become the leader of the family. He will take responsibility for the actions of his brothers in betraying Joseph. He will even step in and offer his life as a substitute for his youngest brother. And then when you get to Matthew chapter 1 in the New Testament, the start of the New Testament, we're given the family tree of Jesus. And and who do we find stuck in there? Judah, who fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. See, these are the people with whom God deals. In in the family tree of God's Saviour, and not just tucked away somewhere and forgotten about, but brought out in the open to be discussed at the family dinners and Christmas parties, is a man like Judah and a woman like Tamar and countless other spiritual failures who all needed God's mercy and forgiveness, which he was going to bring about through their descendant, through his chosen ruler, Jesus, whose name means God saves because he will save his people from their sins. This is what God is like. This is what he is doing, raising a ruler, a ruler who will be betrayed by the wicked, whose purposes, who purposes that betrayal as the mechanism by which he's going to save and bring mercy and forgiveness and life and blessing. Right? And he is bringing healing and change to the lives of people who do not deserve it. This is what God is like. This is who he is. Don't run from him. Don't run from his family if you're tempted to do that. Have you faced up to him? And have you had your sin dealt with? Have you been turned around by him? Let's pray. Father, these are amazing things that you were setting in place so long ago that would teach us about your, you and your ways, your character, that you were going to save through a chosen ruler, through his betrayal even, and that you, hadn't, you don't lose your grip, but you are in charge and you are bringing healing and change and mercy to miserable sinners. Father, we thank you for the hope and the comfort that gives us who are not righteous. We don't deserve anything from you. Please, Father, work in our lives. Help us not to flee from our guilt, to run from you, to run from your family, and to run from your grace. Father, we recognize that sometimes you've got to bring us down into the the very pits of despair before we can see our need and reach out for it. But Father, we pray that you'll have mercy and we won't get that far. Father, please work in us. And when we are hated for knowing you, help us to know that we're in good company, that you have not lost your grip and help us to submit ourselves to you, to love you, the one who has saved us. In Jesus' name, amen.